the biggest thing that people could do differently would be just to reach out to others. And if they are experiencing a time of feeling more distressed, of heightened difficulties in certain areas of their life, whatever it may be, to reach out, to say like, maybe going and seeing a professional for a few sessions would help and they will be surprised. Sometimes that's all a person needs. It really is because they just need to be able to talk to someone for a couple of times and they needed to hear like, what you're going through is normal. What you're going through is what you would expect when someone goes through this. But let's talk about ways that you can move forward and not let it negatively impact you so much. Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Welcome back to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. Today, we're joined by Stephanie Silberman, PhD, who is a licensed psychologist, as well as a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. On this episode, we'll be discussing all things therapy as it relates to a patient, a caregiver, a loved one, a family, and friend, all relating to chronic illness diagnosis. We'll also be discussing tips and tricks for anxiety and depression, some personal stories, and so much more. So without further ado, Dr. Stephanie Silberman. Dr. Stephanie Silberman, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I am so excited to talk to you about grief, anxiety, depression, anything related to someone with a terminal illness. I'm sure that so many of our listeners will be so excited to hear what you have to say. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I guess we can start off. I was thinking maybe we can do this in different categories. The first category I would love to cover would be caregivers slash family members slash loved ones, all relation to those people who are dealing with someone who they know is terminally ill. I think the first question would be, as a caregiver, a family member, a loved one, how can I still take care of myself and avoid burnout? That's a great question. So one of the main factors that affect individuals so much when they're caregivers is just they are spending almost all of their waking hours providing care for someone else, for their loved one. And it becomes very overwhelming as much as they may have done things in the past, like gone out with friends or gotten in their exercise and things like that. They tend to start skipping that because there's less and less time to do for themselves and they are really devoted to being there for their loved one. So it's very important to avoid burnout by trying to continue some level of normality 
of whatever that routine was like before this person became a caregiver. So in other words, you know, making sure you're still eating healthy, exercising, but also setting aside time for yourself to create a balance in life. And that can mean meeting friends for coffee or for lunch. Maybe it's not going to be as often as it was before, but just trying to still get those things in there. And also, you know, having people to talk to about it, using either support networks, support groups, good friends that have gone through similar situations, all of those kinds of things will really help an individual to avoid burnout. Awesome. And so what do you think is the most important thing that you've told caregivers in the past from whether they're family, friend, a loved one, you know, maybe a client that's come to you, what is the best advice that you've given them aside from what you just said? That advice would be that they need to make sure that they don't feel guilty for spending some time doing something for themselves. Because that's really the biggest issue is that I will hear from clients or patients that they say, but you know, how can I do that? What if my significant other needs me in that moment? What if something happens while I'm not there? I mean, they only feel comfortable around me. They only feel safe and secure around me. So there's this sense of guilt that caregivers start to have because the person they're caring for really depends on them and you know, really needs them. Because of that, there's a lot of guilt that can come along with trying to spend some time doing something else, doing something for themselves. And so I really try to encourage people that that's not healthy, that actually their loved one would want them to be taking care of themselves and that they actually won't be a very effective caregiver if they are not able to do that for themselves. Right. I think that's so interesting because we did like a little Instagram live question Q&A yesterday and someone asked, how can I be a better caregiver? For my 32-year-old, I want to say it was husband. And I replied and I was like, well, you know, I'm not a medical advisor, but in my personal opinion, I don't understand how you're able to take care of someone if you don't take care of yourself. So like making sure you stay hydrated and eating. So that's really nice to hear from a professional that that's what you need to do. For sure. And to even just take that extra step, because the stuff you're talking about, for sure, basic, like people are going to have health problems themselves if they're not eating properly, getting enough rest and all of that kind of stuff, but also just knowing they can step away and whatever that means for them, whether it's going by themselves to go for a walk in the park, like, but don't feel guilty about it because they need to have that time in order to come back and be a better caregiver. And so how important is it to balance caregiving with personal life? Like, let's say Obviously, of course, I mean, it's so important to take time for yourself, but what if you are a sole caregiver? How can one make sure to balance? Like you said, just said now, you can't fully devote every single thing while having no capacity for yourself. That's a great question. I think what happens a lot of times is that even as a sole caregiver, people feel alone. They feel like they are the only one sole caregiver, only one. But it's not actually true. There are friends, there are other respite type of care that they can get. And it's a matter of reaching out to those people. So many patients that I will deal with that are caregivers 
say to me, but I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to call my friends and ask for any help. They have their own lives. They have their own problems. So they don't reach out. That is such a big mistake because people like to help others. Even if it's a matter of reaching out to one friend and saying, can you come over for a couple of hours and just spend time here? That will be helpful because it'll be mixing up the routine a little bit. I know people that when they find out that someone is in this situation, like you're saying, like the person yesterday that you said is caring for someone quite young and feels probably really alone, who do I turn to? I've heard of people that friends will organize meals and start to say, okay, let's all get together. If it's only one or two nights a week, let's bring food over. Just so it's one thing left for caregiver to do. So there's never really a solo caregiver alone in an isolated world. There are friends, there are potentially more distant family members, but there's also a lot of organizations that are out there to help as well. That's so important that you just mentioned that. And I hope everyone listening will realize that there are so many other resources, even if they do feel like they are doing this by themselves. Have you noticed a common thing among caregivers in regards to mental health? So, I mean, there tends to be a a mixture between anxiety and depression. So the anxiety, you can imagine, it's about what the future holds, what is going to be the prognosis, the end result, will treatment work? Am I doing everything I need to do to help my loved one? So there's a lot of anxiety that's created there. Also, sometimes people don't reach out and tell others. So they're sort of holding back. They're not even telling people that could potentially be helpful for them. And so that leads to more anxiety. The other side is you definitely have a component of individuals who will feel more depressed, which is very understandable considering the situation. Here's someone that they love so much who has a very sad diagnosis and they don't know, again, what the future will hold. And so they can start to feel a bit despondent and really just not themselves. May not be taking care of themselves, but that might also be due to lack of appetite, lack of wanting to do anything for themselves, just kind of feeling really blah. You know, again, these would be situations where it's so important to reach out to others because there's so much support out there. And just being able to talk to someone about how they're feeling and realize, well, this is really normal, what you're feeling right now, what you're going through. But there are things that you could be doing to help yourself to feel a little bit better. That's really the bottom line there. What would you say are some of like your favorite tips and tricks per se for someone who is dealing with this anxiety what are the best recommendations you can have to someone to help combat these mental hurdles if they've seen a therapist ever in the past they might consider going back that would be a good time to really have someone completely objective to be able to discuss things with so that would be one aspect people will sometimes say though they don't have time for that or they again feel guilty taking that time away but one would be to get professional help. For other individuals, just trying to do things that they know have reduced anxiety in the past. So whether that's going for a walk, whether that's listening to some music, whether that means calling a friend and trying to talk about other things that are going on, you know, even just doing deep breathing exercises, relaxation, like all of these things can help overall to reduce anxiety and 
be really important for someone to be implementing while they're going through this. And similarly, with depressive symptoms, depending on how severe they are, to really seek professional help and see what kinds of things can be done. It might be warranted to take some medication, even if it's just for a short term. But if that means that it can make you feel better and you're a better caregiver and you're not feeling stuck like you don't even want to get out of bed each day. So again, it depends on the severity of the symptoms, but there's a lot of non-pharmacological options too. They just have to start figuring out what works for them and usually speaking to a professional will help. That's a really great recommendation. I mean, I personally, I do therapy and I absolutely adore my therapist. So I think it's really nice for people to know that they're not by themselves and seeking professional help from a therapist or a psychologist. That's the thing. Of course, being in the field, like I hear from people all the time, maybe my friends just feel very open that they can tell me this, but so many of my friends tell me like, oh yeah, well, when I go to my therapist, I wonder, it's much more common, I think, than people think because a lot of people are experiencing symptoms that cause them distress and that they want to work on, that they want to feel better, that they want to be the best that they can be. It is really important not to feel like there's a stigma attached and instead to say, hey, this is something I need to do for me. And so my last question at the caregiver, family member, and loved one topic, boundary setting is obviously something that's so important when you're working as a caregiver in this kind of situation. And I think a lot of people feel that boundary setting is either they're nervous to do it, they don't know how to go about it. What do you feel is a healthy way to set boundaries for yourself and for those around you? So are you speaking about boundaries specifically between the caregiver and the loved one or with other family members? Who are you referring to? Both. Because I think that there are certain boundaries that operate between a caregiver and the person being cared for, but as well as those, let's say, you know, a bunch of friends or family that's working to speak to the caregiver. Caregivers like, I just have no time. Like, I just have no energy. You can kind of tackle it from both sides. So I definitely think that that second component is really an important one to address. Medical issues are private and everyone can make the decision about who they tell, when they tell, how much information they want to disclose. So I think it's really important for caregivers to respect what their loved ones want in that regard. And it can be difficult. I mean, I've seen situations where an individual with a chronic medical illness, very late stages, does not want to tell certain family members. Then again, it's their decision. They have the history with that family member. They clearly don't feel like they're going to get the support that they need. So it's a hard kind of thing, but I do feel like it's really important If that's a situation where the person doesn't want to be disclosing to others to really try to gauge what the reasoning is, and do you think there's any possibility that maybe now's the time to kind of mend the ways of the past? Like maybe it's with a sibling that the person never got along with, but would that sibling want to be there for you at the end and be able to say, I'm sorry for things I did in the past? So I think it's really important to continue to try to have those discussions because sometimes things can take a turn for the worse quicker than we might expect and it might be too late. That's just really important is to have those discussions, but also to be respectful, to not go behind someone's back and say, well, I'm just doing 
what I want to do and I'm telling the people I want to because in the end, it, it's their life and it's their medical condition that they have to share with others. So I think that is really important. As far as like boundaries between a caregiver and a loved one, it's hard for me to think exactly the scenario there, but only just in the sense, maybe once again, of even if there are certain things that as a caregiver you are doing for your loved one, maybe also respecting that certain things feel too private or too invasive. And if that loved one is able to say that, maybe they can get someone else in, a professional in that can be doing certain things. Because sometimes people feel very sort of lowered down. They've done things for themselves for years and years and years, and as long as they can remember, and now they're more debilitated. And so it's important, again, to get that feedback and make sure that, yes, the caregiver is there, but would the person feel more comfortable having someone else come in for certain things? I think that's a good segue to move on to the patient portion. A lot of patients, of course, I personally can't relate, but from the organization that I've built and, you know, say my father, as a patient, when you're dealing with an illness, it comes with anxiety and preparing for surgery, going through treatment. It's nerve wracking for a caregiver. So I can't even begin to imagine how it feels for the person who's actually going through it. How do you recommend that patients can cope with anxiety when it comes to their illness and surgery and treatment? Again, going to sort of fall back on issues related to how they've dealt with anxiety in the past and see what works for them. So if they found that doing certain relaxation exercises or grabbing a book and telling everyone to leave the room and just be by themselves, those kind of things can continue and be helpful. I do see much more depressive symptoms, though, in patients versus anxiety that make sense. They are really pretty bummed out about what's going on in their life. It really does depend on age. So I'll have a very different experience from someone that I'll work with who will be much later in life who can tell me I've had a good life, though. I'm happy. I have my children and I have my grandchildren and they're all have jobs and I'm successful and I feel like I did what I needed to do in life. I've traveled. I've had a good life versus the individual that's much younger that now feels just like they have no control left. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They are missing out on all these things that they wanted to do. They're young. They didn't have this. So I really think getting into some kind of either support group or even individual professional help with individuals who are in that state of mind would be helpful because they need someone to be able to talk to and to say, this is so unfair. I did everything right. I kept a healthy diet. I exercised. I ran marathons. And look at what happened to me. Look at what happened. And that is where a lot of people will really feel the sense of just despondency and frustration because it just shows it doesn't matter. That's where you want to always get back to. But it did matter. It did matter. Like maybe you'd already be gone if, if you'd led a different life before. And maybe it's making you stronger now for any kind of treatment that you're going through and things like that. So just to try to really be understanding and caring to all patients that are going through this. But I really encourage them to seek help. And there's a lot of resources typically 
that are available even in hospitals. For example, like if it was before surgery, they can call in a consult to get a psychologist to come right then and there to try and do a little bit with them to relax more. They're going to get through it kind of thing. Right. Well, you mentioned, of course, potentially like meditation or different techniques for anxiety if someone's used those in the past. But if someone hasn't done that but would be interested, do you have any breathing techniques that you personally like to use or that you like to follow that bring some peace? In general, the breathing exercises are really easy. They just require practice. So the one that I recommend most to people is what's called diaphragmatic breathing. What you would do is you put your hands on your belly, even though the breathing is in the diaphragm. I like to call it belly breathing just because people can relate a little bit more. But if you sit sort of calmly with your feet flat on the floor and you put your hands on your belly, you want to breathe in and you will feel your diaphragm expanding. So you'll actually feel your belly going out. And then you hold that for just a few seconds and then release either through your nose or your mouth. I personally prefer through the mouth. And you just try to really keep it slow and do about four to six breaths in a minute. It's amazing that after just a few minutes, three to five minutes of doing deep breathing exercises, people will feel significantly more relaxed. So it's such a basic thing and it's so easy to learn. And I'm sure that if people put that into Google, they'll find all kinds of YouTube videos and people describing it even more. But it's really just to focus on that inward and outward breath. Right. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the conversation. And I think something that's also so important is sleep. You are the queen of sleep. Your website is sleeppsychology.com. Let's talk about sleep and how it affects the body. I mean, no matter who you are, from what walk of life, how does sleep affect the body? Because it's so imperative to so many things about our daily lives. So we do need sleep for all aspects, right? For physical health, for emotional and mental health, and for cognition, being able to think clearly. It's really important to get enough sleep. What's really important right away to throw out there is that everyone needs a different amount of sleep. And it's just all dependent on how you feel the next day. So some people are perfectly happy with six hours of sleep. They feel great. Other people need eight. So it just depends on you. And you shouldn't be going for some sort of magic number. Instead, it's just important to get enough sleep that the next day you feel refreshed, that you don't feel like you're dragging and and could fall asleep when you're sitting waiting somewhere. That's too sleepy, right? so important to make sleep a priority and that if you don't have any particular difficulties with sleep, that you just make sure that you're getting enough of it, that you set aside time. Because nowadays, there's a lot of people that don't get enough sleep simply because they're doing other things. They actually don't even allow themselves enough time in the bed at night to get enough sleep. And so if I'm someone who, let's say, it's going through a very anxious time. And, you know, let's say it's from a patient perspective. Let's say I have a scan tomorrow and 
I'm tossing and turning. I'm unable to sleep at night. I'm feeling stressed out. What do I do? So you should get up out of bed, go in another room and do something either boring or relaxing. And so many people say to me, like, what do you mean? Why would I get out of bed? That's not going to help me to fall asleep. But I explain to them, yeah, but you're not sleeping. And the tossing and turning actually makes it worse. So it's really important to just get out of the bed. You know, sometimes let's say you do have something really, really stressful that's the next day. Maybe writing it down will help. Now you got it out and you're like, okay, I feel better. Like I wrote down, I'm very stressed about this, but probably the surgery will go fine because this doctor has done it a gazillion times and why should I be any different? It's okay. Time to go back. But people need to write it down. If they have issues like that, they need to get out. Or just try and do things that sort of distract from what's ever causing the anxiety. And as soon as you start to feel sleepy again, you get up and you try to go back to sleep in your bed. If so, let's say someone starts developing sleep issues consistently where, you know, every night they're getting out of bed and they're struggling to sleep and it becomes, you know, I guess sort of insomnia at that point. How can one begin to regulate their sleep cycle so that they're able to function the next day for whatever they're doing? Some sort of big tips would be to only get into bed when sleeping. And then like you're saying, to continue to sort of get out of bed when not sleeping and to start keeping track of it. The type of treatment for insomnia that is the number one recommended from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, because it's the most efficacious, is called cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's specific for insomnia. So we actually call it CBT in the sleep world. And there are a lot of books out there, including my book, The Insomnia Workbook, but there's a lot of other books out there that are self-help if a person does not have the time to go and see a sleep clinician. But if they do have time, they want to try to nip it in the bud as soon as possible. Because typically for just sleep-related issues, I only see patients for about four or five sessions. So it's really something that can be taken care of quickly and back to sleeping better. So there's probably a lot of different things that the person is doing that they don't realize are negatively impacting their sleep. So grab a self-help book, start with that, see if they can nip it in the bud and not have it be, you know, really chronic in nature. And definitely to try to do that and a non-pharmacological approach first, because all of the medications that a person is going to take or would get prescribed for sleep can cause dependency. That's not a great path to go down. Right. What if I'm someone, you know, who starts developing sleeping issues and I'm so concerned that, oh, is this ever going to go away? And I start to get more stressed about the sleep piling on top of other issues that I'm having. How long does it normally take to regulate a sleep cycle? Is it possible? Is this going to be a forever thing? No. So again, like I see, you see people for just four to five sessions. So you can consider that that's sort of on a weekly basis. So it might take about a month to really regulate things. It can take even less time on occasion if the person's not taking any kind of meds for sleep and if they're going to get kind of strict, but they have to start doing things that are going to be helpful for them. So examples would be, you know, to make sure that they get in exercise every day. The more active a person is during the day, the more helpful it will be for their sleep. To make sure that they're watching how much caffeine they're having. Because 
I certainly remember when I was in my 20s that I'd be able to have an espresso and go straight to sleep, but that would not be something that I would recommend to people. And I certainly don't do that anymore. Things that maybe you could do in the past, you might not be able to do anymore. So it's important to go in there and and fix all kinds of things. For caffeine, I usually recommend that people don't have any for about 12 hours before bedtime. And then other kinds of things like making sure you're not on electronics right up until bedtime. And some people are on their phones even while they're in the bed. So that's going to make it harder for them to fall asleep. There's really a lot of things that have to be put into place, but it's very, very treatable. And especially if people will seek help right away in the beginning, those are always my favorite patients because we just nip it in the bud and it's done quickly. We fix the sleep over done with rather than letting it drag on and really becoming a long-term problem. What are your thoughts on journaling? I know a lot of people all over social media now are talking about journaling and being meditative and taking time every day. And they do that when they wake up and before they go to bed. Do you think that has a positive impact? And and what are your thoughts? It depends on what you're journaling. Okay. For example, if I was dealing with someone who was very depressed and the only thing that they were going to be journaling about was how miserable they were and how awful everything was, that's really not going to be helpful to them. Because they're just going to be sort of reiterating everything negative that they feel in their life. That would be an example where I'd say, "Eh, not the best idea. But I would tell them, try to start incorporating into a journal things that are positive in your life. Like you need to write down things that you're grateful for. A gratitude type journal. So That would be an example of where it could be really helpful for that person because we're getting them to focus on positive things instead of just journaling for the sake of journaling. So I do believe that journaling needs to have a purpose, not just like writing it down for the sake of writing it down. It should have an end goal of what am I trying to achieve? And so for a lot of people, they might want a more positive attitude. For some people that experience symptoms of anxiety, They can be journaling and writing down other ways of thinking about things. So they might write down something that they're worried about, but then try to flip it and see if they can come up with alternate ways of thinking. And then it can be really helpful to have that journaling in place. Amazing. I think that's really good to know. I've definitely, you know, done my fair share of journaling and not all of it has been so positive. So I think when you see all these fads across social media, people just tell you like, yeah, you have to journal every day, but it doesn't tell you like what you should be journaling and like what will actually you know, make a difference for you and your mental health. I mean, it's just one of those funny things because a lot of times people will start to journal when they're feeling really down and it's not the ideal time if that's all they're going to be putting down. A lot of times people will tell me like, I look back at these journals from when I was a teenager and I was writing about this breakup and what happened with this friend and I said, they said that I had a lot of great times when I was growing up and you would never know that from the journals. So it's about taking that time to sort of process and find good things as well and try to have, again, that purpose of, hey, I want to feel better. I want to feel good. Let's see how I can put that spin on it. And so speaking about positivity, how do you feel like from what you've seen in patients over the years and your experience, how have you seen a positive attitude impact someone's life? Oh, it can make all the difference. You really see people who are much more resilient due to a positive 
outlook on life. You can have two individuals that went through the exact same experience that was really difficult to go through, whether it was a traumatic experience that they had as a child or a recent divorce even. I mean, so many different things that we could say here, right, that could be causing someone to feel really negative and down. Those two individuals can be going through life through such different experiences based on the attitude, based on a level of positivity of, well, if I do this and this, things could get better. Well, there's no point in me dwelling on that because I've got X, Y, and Z going for me. So to try to always flip it back to how can I see things in a more positive light? And just as a side note, it's funny because when I first started training about, well, we'll say a long time ago, about 25 more years ago, I will tell you that was when a, a gentleman came out. He was, he was the president at the time of the American Psychological Association, and he came out with what was called positive psychology. He was the one that really pushed it. I mean, it was there before, but he was the one that really started publishing all about it. And it was like his mission to getting people to focus more on positive because a lot of therapy in the past had been like coming in and just focusing on all these things that happened and the negative of the past and rehashing it. and. Instead, his perspective was, what kind of positive things can we take from these experiences? What kind of things are we doing on a daily basis to add positivity into the lives of our clients, of our friends, or of our family? Now, it's interesting that we even have a whole field called positive psychology based on that. That's amazing. That's so cool. I, I had no idea. And so what is something you wish more people would do in regards to their mental health? The biggest thing that people could do differently would be just to reach out to others. And if they are experiencing a time of feeling more distressed, of heightened difficulties in certain areas of their life, whatever it may be, to reach out, to say like, maybe going and seeing a professional for a few sessions would help and they will be surprised. Sometimes that's all a person needs. It really is because they just need to be able to talk to someone for a couple of times and they needed to hear like what you're going through is normal. What you're going through is what you would expect when someone goes through this. But let's talk about ways that you can move forward and not let it negatively impact you so much. I wish that more people would just reach out. And again, there are so many resources nowadays. There's support groups of all types. There's online forums, although I just would caution to make sure that who's ever on an online forum is is sort of legit, right? There is a lot of stuff out there that might not be helpful, but to make sure, like it's through a proper medical institution, for example, they can have resources online that can even be really helpful. And of course, to seek individual help if needed and to feel like it's okay. It's all right. Everybody needs someone to talk to sometimes. And so I guess stemming from this, I, I just thought of something. A lot of times I think when you reach out to someone, no matter what situation you're in, I think the first words that come out of someone's mouth is, I'm sorry. How do you feel about the words, I'm sorry? Hmm. So you mean when the person is reaching out for help, they're saying, I'm sorry? No, I think if like you're a patient, for example, or you're a caregiver and you, you reach out to someone for help and you express your situation, I think instantaneously, the first thing people will tell you is that like, I'm sorry you're going through this. Or, I'm sorry for this. But like, 
do you think that that has any impact? Oh, it's interesting. I don't know how often I actually use those words. I'm sorry. I think it's more about trying to understand the perspective that the person's going through and that there are a lot of other people who go through similar situations, but everyone has their own individual story and everyone is different. And that together they should be able to figure out what the best path is. So when people are seeking help from a professional, they should know pretty quickly if it's going to work out or not. Meaning after that first session, they should have a feel like, did I relate to that person? Did I feel like they understood me? Did I feel like they were really had my best interest at hand and really want to help me? So they should have that. Did I feel comfortable just talking to them? That alone. So those things are really important if a person's never been to a psychologist or any kind of therapist before to know that if you don't feel comfortable, there are other people out there and that's okay to kind of move past. If you feel like they sort of didn't understand your story, that they didn't really get it, then move on. There's other people and there is going to be someone there that will understand and will be able to help them because it's really important that a person feel understood. That way, the treatment is much more likely to be effective. I think that's so helpful, too, because when I was younger, I went to therapy and I found a therapist and I don't think I really clicked with them, but I just kept going because I was like, oh, then I have to, you know, start over a new conversation with someone. So I think it's really good to hear from a professional that like the first person isn't always the best option for you and that there are so many other options out there of someone that that you might feel better with, that you might relate to better. For sure. And especially nowadays, it can be challenging sometimes, right, to find that person. I mean, they might be trying to go through their insurance or they're kind of looking up on lists and they're picking randomly or they're looking up on Google or maybe word of mouth from a friend. But how much will they know about the person before actually meeting them? You can only see so much from someone's bio on a website. So I think it is really important that a person trust their gut. I will say, though, that it's also important that if an individual kind of has a track record of switching therapists a lot, like tried one session here, no, didn't like, tried one session, that maybe they do need to give a little bit more time and even address what's going on and see if maybe it's more their issue of just not really feeling comfortable talking about the important stuff. Definitely, that, that makes total sense. One final question that I have for you, it stemmed from the same Q&A yesterday. If you're a parent and you have children and you're, you know, you're going through grief or you're, you're losing someone that you love to a terminal illness, how is it best to relate to your kids? How do you do that? Right. Well, it greatly matters how old the kid is, how old the children are, okay? Because obviously it's going to be very different for quite a young child, like preschool age that's still seeing and hearing everything that's going on, but is not going to have the same level of understanding. But even when they're in sort of elementary school age and up, making sure that you can be as honest with children as you feel that they can understand. So you might need to be wording things in a specific way, but not letting them in on it at all is not a good idea either. I'll use a personal example here. And that is just that 
when my father was very ill with stage four cancer, I brought my children all the time to see him. And I got some feedback from some individuals who said to me, are you sure that that's really the best idea? Are you sure that this is good for them to see the progression of the disease and how sick he's getting? And I always would talk with them about it. So each time we come home from visiting, I would always talk with them about it and just kind of process. And they would say it's really hard to see Papa that way. It's, you know, really hard for us not to be able to go throw football with him anymore, to know that he can't do the things he used to do. But they always appreciated having that time with him. They just spent time with him in a different way. And I always recall a really close friend telling me afterwards, when I relayed to her about this, she said, you've taught your children a really important lesson. And that is that you don't desert people when they are sick. And you taught them from a young age, this is what you do. You always stay by them. So again, I did have the advantage of being a psychologist, that I was really attuned to what was going on with my kids. I would always talk with them afterwards. How are you feeling about it? And this and that. We really spoke a lot about it. But I just give that as an example because many people would not have brought their kids over and over again to see someone who is so sick. Depending, again, on the age of the kids, I just think it's important that they do have the opportunity to be seeing their loved one, no matter how sick they are but also that there's just a lot of talking and support afterwards. There might be tears, but that's normal. And it doesn't mean that what you're doing to them is damaging in any way. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're learning something really important about life. And that is that people will get sick and people will die. And it's important for them to know how we treat others when they're in that situation and that we're still there for them and still caring for them. Wow, that uh, that's intense. I didn't even think about that. It's interesting because when, when my grandparents were sick when I was younger, my parents wouldn't take me to go see them. And so it's interesting hearing you say this now. It's like, wow, I mean, it's, it's so insightful. It's very cool to hear. And I, I appreciate you sharing. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. For any listeners that are interested, that want to get in touch with you or that want to learn more about you or read your book, what is the best way to do that? My website is sleeppsychology.com, and it's got two P's in the middle, so sleep psychology. My book, if anyone is interested, is available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It is called The Insomnia Workbook. And for anyone who speaks Spanish, it's translated as well. It's called Convertir el Insomnio, una guía práctica. And if they need to reach out to me directly, they'll find my information on the website. Well, Dr. Silverman, thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation immensely, and I believe our listeners will as well. So thank you so much for your time. I'm so thankful to have had you on here, and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. You're very welcome. And again, thank you to you and very important research that your organization is doing and the help that you're providing. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research 
Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.